0: HD Smartcast. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast.
1: Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor, Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi. So today we have with us Nikhil Menon, who's written Planning Democracy, how a professor, an institute, and an idea shaped India. Hi, Nikhil.
0: Hi, Manjula. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I was reading this book and it's like really interesting and it, you know, touches on, uh, on, on the, you know, on India's history of planning and, uh, and a period, like we were saying, which is in, which is only now beginning to be studied properly you know, the immediate um, post-independence period. So maybe I should just read this flap so that listeners know what the book is about.
0: Yeah? Sure, yeah. Yeah, thank you.
1: India's five-year plans were one of the developing world's most ambitious experiments. After nearly two centuries of colonial rule, planning the economy was meant to be independent ideas, uh, India's route from poverty to prosperity. Planning Democracy explores how India married liberal democracy to a socialist economy. Planning not only built India's data systems, it even shaped the the nature of its democracy. The five-year plans loomed so large that they linked surprisingly far-flung contexts, from computers to Bollywood to Hindutva. In this compelling history, Nikhil Menon brings the world of planning to life through the intriguing story of a gifted scientist known as a professor, a trailblazing research institute in Calcutta, and the alluring idea of democratic planning. Set amidst global conflicts and international debates, Menon reveals how India walked a tightrope between capitalism and communism planning democracy recasts our understanding of the indian republic uh, uh, uncovering how planning came to define the nation and revealing the ways in which it continues to shape our world today so you know what i found maybe we should just start with the professor because that is a great character sketch you know that you've put in there so you know talk about the professor let's start with him and you know his drive and the um, setting up the planning commission and all the things that went into it. Talk about
0: absolutely. Uh, thank you. Uh, the professor, uh, as I refer to him, uh, is Professor P. C. Mahalanobis, Prasanta Chandra Mahalanobis. And the reason that I yes. refer to him in the book as the professor is because uh, he was widely known uh, in Indian professional and academic and policy circles as the professor. And as I point out, he even signed his own correspondence sometimes as just the professor. Um, Mm -hmm. So Mahlonopis is, I think, not well-remembered enough in India today. Uh, He was certainly one of the most influential Indians of his generation in the 1950s and 60s. He is the person responsible for establishing the Indian Statistical Institute in the early 1930s, which went on to become one of the leading and pioneering institutes for statistical research in the world. Uh, He is responsible with the Indian Statistical Institute in Calcutta for establishing the central statistical office that we have till today. The National Sample Survey, which we use till today to measure employment, uh, agriculture, industry, our poverty line. Uh, but perhaps the reason that Malnobis was that influential is because he was the person that authored the second five-year plan, which was between 1956 and 61. And mm-hmm. while that might just sound a very short period, the reason that the second five-year plan was so significant is because it sort of laid out the blueprint for India's economy throughout the 50s to up to right up to the early 1990s until the market reforms. Uh, yes. And so uh, in some ways, the the idea that we have of the Indian economy before liberalization is the economy and the blueprint that Mahalanobis and the professor lays out. Hmm.
1: So, um, uh, uh, you know, but you've, you've kind of made him come alive, you know, this uh, this this figure. I mean, he's... He comes across as like a really complicated man, but with so much drive. So
0: a- absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, Malenovis was, uh, yes, I, I think drive is a good way of describing him. Force of personality is another. Uh, he isn't someone who is instantly liked by the people around him, but he is certainly someone that everyone had to contend with. Uh, he uh, was born in uh, w- uh, his family's from what was t- today would be Bangladesh, uh, from Bengal. Grew up at the turn of the century. Uh, Went to presidency college and then to Cambridge, uh, excelled at Cambridge, uh, but then had a chance encounter at the library at King's College in Cambridge, uh, which turned him from a student of physics to being very interested in statistics. Uh, And when he came back to Calcutta, he becomes a professor of physics at presidency. But uh, on the side, as his sort of side gig, as it were, he becomes a statistician and goes on to become over the course of his life. Uh, one of the pioneering uh, and leading uh, statisticians of his generation. In fact, some uh, statistical uh, scientists have argued that he was perhaps the most influential uh, statistician of his generation. Uh, and as you said, he was possessed of extraordinary drive, made sure to insert himself into domains that he perhaps had no business in. He was not trained sure. as an economist, but uh, tried to ensure that he was at the center of India's economic discussions. He was not a diplomat, but uh, trampled on the toes of India's uh, professional foreign service. We have uh, evidence of multiple letters from different diplomats and people in the IFS complaining to Nehru that Mahalanobis is all over the world, in Geneva, in Moscow, and in the U.S., making promises to people that he has no right to be making, uh, or trying to sort of make deals for India. So, for example, to get India's first computers from the Soviet Union, it's Mahalanobis who finds himself a seat next to the Soviet ambassador at a sort of lawn party in Delhi uh, and tries to wrangle that out of them.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, this whole um, establishment of the, the statistical infrastructure and then later computerization, you know, you you make this point that computers kind of came to India, not like what is now popularly believed by that Rajiv Gandhi got them in and, you know, but it was much earlier. So talk about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that the popular idea in India is that, um, you know, Rajiv Gandhi was this uh, technologically savvy prime minister, which comparatively or relatively he was, and that he's responsible for India's digitization. Uh, but as I point out in Planning Democracy, the story goes much further back. It goes back to, um, to the late 1940s and early 1950s uh Mahalanobis uh, hears about this computer, which we have to remember the 1940s, the computer or electronic brain, as it was sometimes referred to, was this quite uh, amazing object, a sort of fantasy object that people desired, uh, mm. and also quite ridiculously expensive. Uh, a computer in the n- mid-1940s cost a million dollars uh, and mm. another $200 for upkeep. So Mahalanobis mm. hears about these computers and learns about them when he's traveling uh, in the United States uh, at Harvard and at Princeton meeting scientists there. And he talks to them about, you know, whether India can have a computer. And he realizes that the reason that India needs a computer is because India wants to plan its economy. And if you want to plan an economy, you need to be able to basically crunch very, very large sets of numbers. And because he was so intimately associated with the National Sample Survey, he was he was well aware and well positioned to realize that India would be in need of such machines in order to use the kind of data that the National Sample Survey was, was uh, producing. Um, and so, uh, so it is actually planning and development that causes India to pursue computers rather than, say, military requirements. Uh, and it is in the, the 1950s that then Mahalanobis pursues uh, computers really quite indefatigably Um, in the US, in Europe, in the Soviet Union. And I chart all of this uh, in one of the chapters Mm. of my book about how he is constantly writing letters, traveling the world, meeting people, trying to figure out a way in which India can pay for it. Because of course, for a poor country like India, spending a million dollars on a computer just does not seem viable. And so India has to find a way to get it for free. And, um, as I point out, one of the problems with getting it from the Soviet Union was that the Soviet Union had an information blackout under Stalin. So India didn't even know about the, the computer developments there. And the problem mm-hmm. with the American was that Americans basically thought of Mahalanobis Nobis and the, the professor as a communist. And yes. during the Cold War, why would America give a computer to a communist and to a communist institute as they thought the Indian Cisco Institute? Uh, the funny part of all of this is that Mahalanobis Nobis was completely unaware of this view of him. <laughs> and so he's constantly writing letters and, you know, he keeps getting sort of uh, responses that are lukewarm. But uh, what, as I found, there are these classified documents between the State Department and the embassy in Delhi saying that, no, we can't hand this over to them. Uh, these are communists, and why would we do that?
1: Hmm. This commie wants our uh, tech to kind of yes, supply exactly. and to
0: that, you know And obviously, it can only be put to good uses. He says it's for development, but really, hmm. you know, what if they secretly use it for something else?
1: yes so and he was finally beaten to the computer thing by uh, uh, homi baba right who got the uh,
0: the first Actually plane. not i mean Nobis is responsible for bringing the first two digital computers to india the first two computers digital computers in india uh, were from britain and then the ural from the soviet union which came to mm-hmm. calcutta uh, mm-hmm. homi baba does beat uh, Nobis uh, to building the first indigenously built computer which oh, Mahalanobis goodness. decides to abandon because it would have taken much longer. So the TIFRAC, which uh, Homi Baba inaugurates in mm-hmm. uh, at, at TFR in Mumbai in 1969, I think, uh, is several years after India gets its first computer, which is 1952. And mm-hmm. uh, in Mahalanobis's estimation and that of the Indian Statistical Institute and indeed the Indian government as well, the Planning Commission as well, India needed those that digital computer several years earlier in order to be working with the data that was being produced And so actually for uh, Mahalanobis was ahead of all others in India by several years, at least bringing these computers and using it, using them in India. Hmm.
1: Okay, another story that I that I found very interesting, like an as an aside, is that Nadler, is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, his story. But then what happened? Did he come to Calcutta? Did he, you know, uh, did he stay long and then go back or what?
0: Yeah. So, so, just for your listeners, uh, the story of Martin Nadler is the story of this uh, of this uh, young Jewish boy from Brooklyn who has dreams of communism, uh, leaves at a very young age from his uh, home, uh, tells his parents that he's going to Paris to study for a doctorate at the Sorbonne, but secretly uh, goes to Paris and then takes uh, another uh, moves to Czechoslovakia because he wants to help uh, to Prague to help with the building of communism. Uh, so this is somebody who is completely um, convinced of the dreams of communism. But over time, while he is in the Soviet Union, he realizes that it's not all that it's been uh, built up to be. He uh, lives a very colorful life uh, in the Soviet Union. He uh, is uh, tailed by the secret police there who actually think that, you know, maybe he's just a American spy at the same time that he's being tailed by the Czech Czechoslovakian police. He is also pursued by the CIA and FBI who think that now he is a defector and who revoke his passport. Uh, And so now he's in this awkward position of having given up his homeland, but being suspected by his homeland and his adopted homeland. Uh, In between this, there are these honey traps. Uh, The secret police send this woman to have an affair with him, but secretly spy on him. He is also recruited to to spy on other spies. So as he says later on in his life, his life had become a sort of parody of a John le Carre spy. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, but the reason that this is interesting to, to, uh, uh, to Indians is that Martin Nadler in the middle of the 1950s realizes that he's in such a bind that in order for him to be able to go back home to America at some point where, by the way, I forgot to mention his own mother was spying on him through phone calls and reporting to J Edgar Hoover at the FBI he realized that he needed to go to basically a non-aligned country, that that's the only way in which he could wash off the stain of being either uh, American capitalist or being uh, a communist spy. And so he mm-hmm. tries to find a way to come to a country like India. And it just so happens that Mahalanobis is on one of his world tours at this point uh, and lands in Prague and through the Indian embassy there and through Mahalanobis and the Institute, they find a way for Martin Adler, who's an engineer, to come to Calcutta and spend, I think, close to two years working on India's first computers uh, in Calcutta.
1: So he did do that.
0: He did. Yes, he did. He spent two years. He has a couple of publications that he wrote while he was in Calcutta at the Indian Statistical Institute, and uh, and it's a quite an amazing life because I stumble across these documents about him, but then I realized that he lived till 2008. You know, he had a Facebook Ooh. account, for example. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Oh, because he, I mean, I, uh, of course, I was like interested in the whole story. But then this stood out like it's like some Cold War fiction, <laughs> you know. Exactly. So I thought, and I think
0: that he himself realized that it, that's why he refers to it as like a sort of Cold War spy thriller character, because uh, he realized that his mother was spying on him. He realized that the FBI was was that invested in him only once he in much later on in his life in the 1990s and early 2000s. He put in a Freedom of Information request to the American government to get the now declassified files on himself, which is when he realized that, you know, to his great sadness that, you know, even his mother had been using calls with uh, her granddaughter, his daughter, to spy on him and to convey that information to uh, Edgar Hoover at the FBI.
1: Good God, that that's something you can't, I mean, that's like really uh, earth shattering, <laughs> truly. Anyway. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so okay so that, that 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 those are one of the that's one of the stories within the within this larger story but it's also you know uh, people like gulzari lal nanda and you know his uh, the the way you've drawn him and and his his complicated sort of uh, uh, i mean what we now call hindutva but at that point was not labeled that way because uh, well it wasn't time yet i guess but right. uh, what, And the Congress, the the strains of the right wing of Hindu nationalism within the Congress in in its early days as well. You know, you brought that out also. So let's talk about that and how uh, it played out in the Planning Commission with with bringing in the sadhus and, you know. uh,
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, so the Planning Commission, uh, you know, the first half of the book is about planning as this really... Uh, expert-oriented technocratic enterprise with people like, uh, you know, the Professor Mahalanobis or C.D. Deshmukh, uh, India's finance minister, um, uh, or I.G. Patel, this uh, uh, young economist who goes on later on after being involved in the Planning Commission to heading the I.M. Ahmedabad or London School of Economics, uh, Mm -hmm. or people like Jagdish Bhagwati or Amartya Sen, all of whom were associated with the Planning Commission. But the second yes. half of the book looks at an aspect of planning that I think we've collectively forgotten, which is um, how planning was meant to be this broader social uh, nation-building exercise. Because yes. Nehru and the Congress Party's big uh, rallying cry at this time was that planning was in India was different from Congress planning. It was democratic mm. planning. And democratic mm. planning uh, had to be justified or proven Uh, through efforts at informing India's populace about the five-year plans, partly because there was this rosy image that Nehru and others had that everyone needed to be aware of this grand drama that Indians were engaged in, but also because they believed that they realized, quite frankly, that uh, India's state capacity was just not good enough for the state alone to make these five-year plans work. And so you needed a lot of voluntary effort uh, by Mm -hmm. people in order to make these state plans work. And so the Bharat Sadhu Samaj is one of the more wacky ventures that the Indian government engages in. I mean, some of the others are the song and drama divisions in which the government of India pays for these different dramatic troops to go and sing about the plans and and do plays about the plans in villages across India. Um, so the Bharat Sadhu Samaj was established in, I think it's it's in 1956 that there's this meeting at Birla Mandir, uh, this temple in Delhi, between mm-hmm. about 50 sadhus and uh, members of the government, including the then Minister of Planning and Employment, Gulzarilal Lalanda. Gulzarilal Lalanda, by the way, would go on to become India's home minister and two-time prime minister for interim prime minister for sh- two short periods uh, after Nehru's death yeah. and after Lal Bahadur Shastri's death. So Gulzarilal Lalanda was one of the moving forces behind the Bharat Sadhu Samaj. And the idea was that that the Indian government would pay for and contract with these sadhus in order that the sadhus spread the message of the five-year plans. Now, on the face of this, this is quite absurd, right? Because the five-year plans are this technocratic, extremely secular venture, but the sadhus, of course, are not. Uh, And how do these two come into conversation with each other? Uh, but Gulzar Lalanda thinks that there is no natural distinction between them and that actually in a country as religious as India, and he was right about that, that you needed modes in which to convey plans to people in their own idioms that does not mm. seem alien to them. Uh, and mm. so uh, these sadhus, after this meeting of Billa Mandir, uh, they have several meetings uh, at different kumbh melas. They go and meet the president, uh, President Rajendra Prasad, where, as I say, Usually the president is the one conferring distinctions on Indian citizens, but this time it's the Sadhus that sort of uh, confer a distinction on uh, on President Rajendra Prasad, titling him Rashtra something, you know, sort of uh, giving him <laughs> that honor. Um, and then the Sadhus, uh, over the next few years, uh, do, uh, as they are told, um, uh, with very mixed success, but they try to m- meld things like the Ramayana with ideas about the Panchvarshi Yojana, the five-year plan, uh, at Kumbh Mela's, they're talking about, uh, how Bhagwan Ram would have, uh, you know, talked about the five-year plan they are, uh, but also, uh, as a consequence of, uh, the Congress's partnership with the Congress, with these sadhus, there is a lot of pushback in Parliament. There are some that refer to them. For example, the, uh, the people from the Janasang, uh, and the BHP refer to these as derisively as Congress sadhus. Right. I mean, imagine uh, it's a very different political climate when the Congress is branded as being excessively Hindu. Uh, uh, Mm. But also uh, what happens is that over time, the the Sadhus associate themselves with issues that are not really the issues that the Congress wants to be fighting elections on. So, for example, Mm. uh, anti-cow slaughter. Uh, and then eventually, yes. as I, I point out, one of the, the founding president of the Congress, Sadhu Samaj, of the Bharat Sadhu Samaj, uh, becomes one of the founding vice presidents of the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, and then associates themselves yes. with the Ram Janmabhoomi movement and the Ayodhya movement. So eventually mm. leading to the Sadhu Samaj becoming an asset for the BJP and the, the, the Janasang, which becomes the BJP and the BHP rather than the Congress Party itself.
1: Mm. Mm. So, uh, and and also equally surprising is the volunteer thing of the the, the secu- secular wing. I suppose you can call it the Bharat Sevak uh, Samaj. that's more understandable. But right. e- even that, with its, uh, you know, just just talk about that about young people going and volunteering, and you know. Uh, even that is so, in the current context, you just look at it as exploitation and,
0: you know. Right, um, yeah. I mean, so you know, this is an organization called the Bharat Sevak Samaj, which is, the, in a sense, the parent organization of the Bharat Sadhu Samaj. And this was also mm-hmm. a, a brainchild of Gulzal Nanda, uh, who was uh, an extremely uh, uh, dedicated uh, 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 a politician, somebody who worked for labor issues in Ahmedabad amongst textile workers for several years was a Gandhian, uh, was a labor leader uh, and an extremely simple man in his uh, personal life, known for his honesty and probity uh, uh, across the political spectrum uh, and and died also in sort of relative poverty. Um, uh, Mm -hmm. Gulzala Nanda set up, uh, in conversation with Nehru, set up this thing called the Bharat Sevak Samaj, which was meant to be an outlet for uh, India's youth or uh, India's professional classes to get involved in this nation-building venture. Uh, I think that we forget sometimes the, the romance and the idealism that large sections of Indian society had about uh, Indian independence and what this country could be. And in the early mm-hmm. 1950s, there were a lot of people that wanted to work for free, without payment, uh, for the mm-hmm. building of this country. And so the Bharat Savi Samaj would be uh, deployed for things such as dam building, building schools and villages, building hospitals or dispensaries, even doing work during the 1962 India-China War uh, in uh, in rebuilding uh, different buildings, uh, etc. Et um, and the Baha'u Sevak Samaj uh, was very successful in certain places. In certain places, it was able to uh, direct thousands of people doing free labor in building embankments, for example, in, uh, uh, on rivers that would flood constantly. Uh, there are these yes. uh, the reports that we have of, lo- of lots of money being saved and time being saved because you had a free and volunteer labor force that was willing to work towards uh, these ventures hmm.
1: Hmm. and also the you know you've also brought out the the how everybody brought into the brought into the idea of planning itself right so let's talk about that and about how planning represented a m- sort of middle path for india in a you know a, along with its non alignment in a, during the cold war period
0: Absolutely. I, I think that it, it's, it's important to remember that planning, which uh, today feels uh, so outdated and uh, to, to, to many people so discredited, was at a time uh, in India extremely popular. And I don't mean just extremely popular within the Congress Party, but across the political spectrum. And I think that the mm-hmm. context that is relevant for that is to look at the early 20th century you have actually, from even the late 19th century, from the 1860s and 70s onwards, you have the, the Meiji Restoration in Japan, which brings to, to power this very centralized government that turns this Asian nation around. You have yes. with the uh, five-year plans of the Soviet Union in the early 20th century, this uh, almost amazing transformation of an agrarian nation into a rapidly industrializing nation. In the 1930s, mm. uh, in, uh, after, the, after the, the Great Depression of 1929, even America seems to be engaging in what some people would call centralized planning, with the state playing such an important role in the government. Uh, Britain, in the mid-1940s, the British Labour Party's manifesto, when it comes to power, as late as 1945, explicitly states that it believes in planning and the state's control of certain industries. And so, to people like uh, 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 Subhash Chandra Bose, to people like Jawaharlal Nehru, to even uh, Rabindranath Tagore, planning seems to be the solution to a country's poverty, whether you are capitalist or communist, right? That that planning itself is not associated with, it's just a tool. It's not associated with these political ideologies necessarily. Um, we have in the 1940s, Indian capitalists, and this is something that we forget. Indian capitalists are not opposed to planning. Indian capitalists, in fact, in 1944, proposed the Bombay Plan. Tata, Birla, uh, Lala Sriram, these are all people that propose a planned economy in which they argue that uh, the state needs to control certain aspects of the economy, the state needs to have a very important role in leading the economy. Uh, GD Birla uh, gets up at at FICCI at the Federation of Indian Chambers of uh, Commerce and Industry and uh, pleads with other industrialists saying that we need a planning economy because that is the way of the future. So that's the context, I think, in which planning uh, becomes so central to the story of modern India because it dominates Indian public life early after independence in 1947. Uh, in politics, people are constantly speaking about it, whether it's the Congress Party, even the Janasangh uh, is talking about, which the, uh, the precursor of the BJP is talking about socialism in different forms. Uh, the socialist parties, of course, are talking about planning. There is a Gandhian plan, even though Gandhi himself was a bit, always a bit suspicious of planning. The Communist of yes. course, are also talking about planning Uh, And so it is one of the great uh, political experiments of the 20th century of how India tries to, as you say, walk this middle path between the communism of the Soviet Union and the capitalism of America by saying that we will adopt the liberal democratic principles of the West, but at the same time, we are inspired by and believe in a version of this Soviet inspired five-year plan, uh, centralized planning system.
1: Hmm. and also there's um, I can't find it right now but there's an economist who mentions how uh, uh planning is sort of inevitable when, you know, in, in, a, uh, in, in the age when, uh, you know, colonies are becoming independent, or words to that yes, effect. I, yes, yeah. I
0: think, I think it's, that's I.G. Patel, uh, who, uh, as I said, was a, a go-between between Delhi and Calcutta during the second five-year plan debates, but mm-hmm. then goes on to uh, uh, head uh, both I.M. Ahmedabad and become the director of the London School of Economics. Uh, as he says, uh, there was a, a, an aspect of planning that appealed to people that had fought colonialism, uh, planning yeah. seemed to be the uh, uh, sort of almost twinned alongside anti-colonialism. Why? Partly mm-hmm. because India's colonizer, Britain, was also seen as an arch-capitalist nation, right? And so, to be there was very little space politically for a pro-capitalist political position, because that's why you see mm-hmm. across political parties, all parties uh, subscribe to some form, even if more in letter than spirit, some form of socialism. Uh, and so, yeah. anti- And so, being a Planning-based state is seen as being an anti-colonial state, uh, and 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 you see this not just in Asia. You see that in Asia, uh, of course, you see India plans. The South Korea has a planning body. Japan has a planning body at this time. Uh, across the world, France has a planning body at this time. Uh, in Africa, Tanzania, Ghana, Sudan, they all have planning bodies as part of this anti-colonial spirit as well.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Okay. And let's talk about the, you know, you, this, this was very interesting, the National Sample Survey uh, and how um, and what a momentous kind of uh, thing it was, you know.
0: Yes, uh, yes. The National Sample Survey, uh, I mean, it, it, though it does sound extremely uh, dry, I admit.
1: No, it doesn't sound dry at all. So
0: I, I hope that I convey uh, how it is quite a drama. Uh, the establishment, uh, the unfurling of this vast uh, sample survey, which uh, uh, which the Hindustan Times actually at the time refers to as the largest such survey undertaken anywhere in the world. Uh, and economists until today, such as uh, Rohini Somnathan, uh, Abhijit uh, uh, Banerjee, etc., have talked about how Angus Deaton's uh, multiple Nobel Prize winners have talked about how Uh, These national sample surveys were the inspiration for several of the World Bank surveys that that continue to be conducted across the world today. So it is a fundamental contribution to development economics that India makes and the Indian Statistical Institute makes at this time. Uh, The reason that India wanted this sample survey is because, as Nehru talks about in the the mid-1940s, India did not even have enough information about the Bengal famine that had cost so many millions of lives. Uh, India did mm. not know enough about its agriculture, about food production. And so this was seen as a very urgent thing to fix. Uh, and the, p- luckily for India, it had the Indian statistical institute, which had been established uh, two decades prior uh, and was already one of the pioneering institutions uh, in in setting out this new technique called randomized sample surveys, which allowed mm-hmm. for you to, instead of going from plot to plot, covering the entire landmass of India to measure, for example, how much grain or beet or rice is produced to instead select a small sample and from that project outward to what India's sort of national production is. Uh, and so uh, this technique was made, uh, was refined as, uh, in Calcutta at the Industrial Institute and made operationalized through the national sample survey where they partnered with the government of India. And the first national sample survey uh, goes into effect in 1951. Uh, it's an enormous enterprise in which uh, hundreds of sample survey investigators have to go across the country, uh, and as I, as I write, they have to brave uh, going to thick forests, uh, falling prey to disease, uh, falling prey sometimes of fearing being eaten by man-eating tigers. Uh, these are all sort of recorded in Mahal Nobis' li- uh, diary. Yes. But yes. what it produces is this extraordinary burst of in- uh, data for India that captures quite granular details about, uh, the lives of people across the country, uh, which allows you to, to make these big, uh, to, to pass trends and to make pro- projections of where the economy is headed, but also to know very intimate details about people's lives. So for example, I look at one sample survey and talk about how it gives you details about how much, uh, uh coriander is being consumed by the man in the house or how much, uh, chili or turmeric is being used in the cooking. Um, and, and so you do get this very, very fine grain uh, detail about people's lives, uh, which is quite, which, is, which uh, has been noted by social scientists across the world, was quite unique to India and has been copied from India. And India is seen as a trendsetter in that regard.
1: Hmm. And which brings us to the current, uh, uh, you know, problem of obfuscation of data, right? Right. So you want to talk about that?
0: Yes. I mean, I, I should say... Uh, at the outset that uh, political interference in um, either the, the production of data or the, or the uh, airing of data has always been uh, a part of our life. And so no government is completely innocent of it. But uh, we do, for example, see under Indira Gandhi, uh, especially a lot of interventions in these processes. But uh, mm-hmm. I think that uh, in the estimation of uh, several economists, uh, um, uh, there have been these petitions uh, signed on by hundreds of uh, s- uh, scientists, uh, social scientists, economists, statisticians, talking about how in the last six years or so, um, either uh, employment data, for example, uh, uh, right before the last general elections <laughs> in 2018 that showed that India's unemployment was at a 40-year high, that data right before it was supposed to be released got uh, suppressed. Uh, A a, a different survey that again produced results that uh, showed the government in a less than flattering light uh, was scrapped entirely. And so I think that uh, we are in a situation where we are going from being one of the world leaders, especially amongst in the developing world uh, at the production of high quality data uh, about the economy. Uh, to being one in which people are increasingly uh, nervous about using this data and trusting this data, on knowing whether the government is being uh, entirely uh, honest in its uh, in its sharing of data. Mm. And I think it's related in some ways to uh, to the government's um, its suspicion uh, uh, of technical expertise and of experts and of technocrats who they believe, uh, uh, often have an agenda uh, uh, against the government. But this, but, the, but, the, but the issue with the data presently is something that economists, including economists uh, who have worked with the present government, have pointed to, that there is an issue with India's data not being as transparent as once was.
1: Hmm. And you also point out, and others have pointed out, about the anti-intellectualism that this implies. I mean, that is inherent currently, right?
0: Yes, I think that I mean there is a uh, there was perhaps uh, in the Nehruvian era perhaps an excessive valorization of these technocrats of people like Mahalanobis of Homi Baba of Meghnad Saha of Vikram Sarabhai, a sort of uh, granting them such wide license that they could do basically just as they pleased. In some ways, uh, skirting more democratic checks and balances on them, uh, but. On the other hand, what we do have as a result of them uh, are extraordinary institutions, right? We have we have ISRO, we have TFR, we have the Indian Institute, we have the National Sample Survey, we have all these things that we also benefit from uh, as a result of uh, these uh, these uh, these different technocrats and intellectuals being given such uh, uh, the National Institute of Design, for example, um, uh, yes. being given such wide berth. Uh, there has been, uh, I, I mean, captured perhaps in Prime Minister Modi's uh, phrase of "you know, hard work over Harvard," uh, though I don't think there's necessarily <laughs> any uh, natural uh, tension between the two of them. Um, I think that there is a, a certain anti-intellectualism, and I think it perhaps is related to uh, the BJP feeling like they have been shut out of uh, academic spaces, but also a belief that uh, that. Uh, uh experts on different fields, whether it's history or economics, etc, come from a certain worldview that they don't share. They come from a, a, a secularist world, worldview often, uh, or pseudo-secularist if you were to trust the, the word of the, the government, uh, and that, that they just fundamentally share a different worldview and that uh, those worldviews uh, have to be distrusted in order for the kind of government policies that they want to be successful.
1: So then, going forward, what does this mean for Indian statistics? You know, it's uh, like bad news, that, right?
0: I mean, as an Indian, I my hope would be that uh, that that it's that that it bad news is temporary, that uh, better sense prevails. Because the thing with economic data is that it's not really even in the government's interest to be suppressing data or to be yes. to even more dangerously scrapping certain surveys because. At some point, you lose, even as the government, you lose sight of what the reality is. And that, I think, mm-hmm. is a dangerous terrain for any government to be on, because then you can lose sight of what is actually happening on the ground. So I think that in the uh, one would hope that in just as a matter of pure self-interest, any government would want to have the most rigorous uh, data collection and data sharing uh, uh, capabilities uh, as possible and, and sort of, you know restore India to the place that it once was, where it was uh, a world leader in establishing such institutions and uh, in, in, in sharing such data sets.
1: Hmm. And, you know, while reading your book, the other thing that struck me is our absolute, uh, uh, you know, indifference to um, archiving, to properly archiving in many instances, like when you've pointed out about clerks sort of uh, uh, perhaps destroying correspondence so that it's not there in the archives. I mean, correspondence of the uh, planning commission Uh, and also even, you know, those Dram- dramatic, whatever the, the societies that were set up to disseminate through drama and song, even that isn't recorded yeah. because that would have been a great, you know, so many plays and so much creative output and all that just vanishes, right? So, talk about it. I know this. it
0: would have been wonderful to have access to that, not just for the sake of my book, but just for the sake of this, uh, but much more importantly than my book, for the sake of this important material being stored uh, for future yeah. generations. I think that. Um, I, this is an issue that has persisted in India across all governments. Uh, India, independent India has not been very good at uh, at keeping its documents, or even if it has been good at keeping the documents, not been good at storing it. Um, yeah. So, for example, I think the pl- problem with the Planning Commission's records is that in some ways it falls because it's a new institution that does not have a precedent in the colonial uh, architecture of the archives. It's sort of mm-hmm. never... Maybe was transferred from the Planning Commission entirely to the National Archives in uh, in, in New Delhi. Uh, I've spoken to higher uh, senior level members of the Planning Commission when it existed, and even they are quite alarmed that that, that these uh, documents not uh, uh, available. But this this is a sort of common complaint amongst historians of modern India that it it is um, that uh, getting access to these documents uh, is not just is is much harder than say colleagues historian colleagues of mine who work in America or Britain. Uh, It's not just that the documents aren't digitized. It's just that the documents sometimes aren't properly handled. They're often crumbling in your hand uh, or that they're just not uh, available anymore. And I think that uh, as a society, I think that we need to pay more attention to archiving, to uh, archivists, to the important work that archivists do in preserving national institutions and national memory uh, and societal memory. Uh, because, you know, uh, you can imagine, a uh, hundred years from now, if a lot of these documents, uh, get lost, that we completely, that a lot of these aspects of our history get completely erased from public memory. And that would be a real pity.
1: Yes. Yes. So, um, uh, you know, and let's, let, let's talk about also the, you know, the winding up of the planning commission and, and, and its new avatar, you know?
0: Yes. Uh. So the Planning Commission, uh, as, I, as, I, as I write in, in, in the book, uh, really loses a lot of its prestige right from the mid 1960s onwards. In fact, mm-hmm. once the second five-year plan runs into choppy waters with the foreign exchange crisis in 1956 and then again another foreign exchange crisis in 1966, uh, the prestige of the Planning Commission really takes a hit uh, and planning uh, ceases to be, especially with then the death of Nehru as well in 1964, ceases to have quite the force as it does as a sort of national master narrative that it once had in the late 1940s and 1950s. And so the Planning Commission then becomes um, an important and powerful, but just another powerful uh, arm of the government. And some of the executive powers that the Planning Commission had starts to uh, swing towards the finance ministry, which is where I think things stood between, say, the late 1960s uh, and uh, and the 1990s. Uh, In fact, Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, one of the arguments that's been made or been speculated by scholars about the reason that uh, Narendra Modi, Prime Minister Modi, wanted to make sure the Planning Commission was sent into the dustbin of history is because he, like many other chief ministers, popular chief ministers, um, resented the fact that they had to, every year, go to the Planning Commission hat in hand asking for money, right? Despite the fact Mm -hmm. that they felt that they were popular leaders, they, Mm -hmm. as popular uh, regional leaders had to go to this technocrat in New Delhi and make a case for why their state needed X, Y, or Z. Uh, and that, and, and given the fact that it is especially associated with the Nehruvian uh, ethos and the Nehruvian institutional architecture, one can see, uh, with, uh, Prime Minister Modi why he wanted to, to do away with it, just as he has quite, uh, volubly and clearly made it clear that he wants to, uh, move past the Nehruvian legacy. And so I think that once Modi became a prime ministerial candidate and it became clear that he was going to win the elections, uh, the writing was on the wall for the planning commission. And so it was uh, consigned uh, to history in 2014 and replaced with this um, slightly confusingly named Niti Aayog because it's both meant to m- mean Niti as in the Sanskrit meaning of Niti, but also the, an acronym, uh, which is the National Institute for the Transformation of India. Uh, and the Niti Aayog, I think, is quite different from the Planning Commission, at least the Planning Commission as it was originally envisaged and operated in the 1950s, because the Niti Aayog really is today a think tank, right? Uh, decisions right. are not really made at the Niti Aayog. We know that decisions are made either at the Finance Ministry or uh, with some major decisions, like, say, demonetization, made at the Prime Minister's office.
1: Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, you know, what I really enjoyed about your book is that besides sort of shining a light on this period that we just, you know, coming, like contemporary Indians are only just understanding, you know, and we are only just beginning to read books about it. Strangely enough, I mean, maybe we needed this this sort of distance from the 50s and you know, and the early 60s to understand uh, that, that period. But besides are also, you know, you've brought out how many of uh, many of the issues that we are grappling with today had their um, genesis in those years, right? So, uh, I mean, I could keep talking to you about your own book, but we'd have, to like, you know, sort of cut the conversation here. But thank you so much. And for the listeners, go out and get Planning Democracy by Nikhil Menon. How a professor, an institute, and institute in an idea shaped India. And it's, it's, it's really a good read and it's a very illuminating read as well. Thank you so much, Nikhil.
0: Thank you so much, Manjula. It's a real pleasure.
1: <laughs> Bye.
0: Bye. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HT Smartcast
1: steißt was